That looks like Tacoma down there. It is November 2013, and D.B. Cooper has been located in Tacoma. Well, kind of. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Washington State History Museum. Into D.B. Cooper, now through January 5th, 2014, the Washington State History Museum is featuring the exhibit, Cooper, the most comprehensive survey of the most famous aviation crime in U.S. history. See the aft stair, step inside a deconstructed 727, and revel in the history of hijacking and so much more. Located at 1911 Pacific Avenue, right off Interstate 5 in Tacoma, this is an exhibit and a museum not to be missed. Check out the website at dbcooper@washingtonhistory.org and definitely stop in on Cooper before it disappears into the mist without a trace from the Washington State History Museum. Cooper. Recently, our resident historian Doug Kank Crispin and Melissa the intern were afforded a private tour of the new Cooper exhibit at the Washington State History Museum in Tacoma, Washington. The tour was conducted by none other than Gwen Whiting, one of the curators of the exhibit. And she did it so we could share this exclusive tour with you, dear ass kicker like pouring D.B. Cooper right into your ear hole. Sort of. Or something like that. So, without further ado, let's get right into it. This is Doug Kent Crispin, resident historian from ORhistory.com, and I'm speaking with Gwen Whiting in Tacoma at the Washington State History Museum about their amazing new exhibit that she put together on D.B. Cooper. Thank you very much for joining us today, Gwen, and showing us around the exhibit. Thanks, Doug. I'm glad you came. It's a wonderful exhibit. It's uh, phenomenal. I, I, I'm pretty sure it's absolutely, besides maybe all the FBI boxes, the most Cooper stuff that's ever been assembled in one place. Would you agree? Uh, we'd like to think so. We had to search all over the country to find all of these pieces, so it's been a big mystery just simply tracking down who has what and where to get it. <laughs> what was the 
funnest thing you found? Kind of like the yes when you were you know stumbling across it or you were looking for it. You knew it would be a challenge. What's what's just kind of the aha moment? Oh my gosh, there's so many aha moments. Uh, the parachute was a big one. Um, that's the obvious one. So I guess. Probably the ID plate was probably a big moment for me just to find something that was from the actual 727 plane. Um, and that was an aha moment in part because we had kind of expected that of all the pieces of the Cooper mystery, that is the one that would have been preserved. And it turned out that it wasn't, it was scrapped. Um, and so we're fortunate in that a private lender came to us after we'd been searching for months um, and said, hey, I have this ID plate. And we're like, well, we hope it checks out and then it did. So that was very fortunate. Um, another piece that I'm very fond of, actually, although it doesn't, isn't directly related to Cooper, um, is the air insurance machine, um, mostly because I would tell, I started talking to my kids about flying in this era, um, although I flew a little later, but, um, and I remembered how my mother would always go on a plane, and before we got on the plane, she would buy insurance in case we crashed and died on the way there, and so my kids were like, no, you didn't. And I was like, yes, we did, we did. And so kind of finding that piece, it was like, well, I'm gonna prove to my kids that, you know, this really happened. And of course, you know, as I'm thinking that, that becomes the one artifact that no one has. Um, and we finally tracked it down at the San Francisco airport. <laughs> so um, to be able to put that piece on a dis display um, for people to realize that, you know, flying actually wasn't perceived as completely without risks in this era. And that it was pretty commonplace to go and, you know, spend two bucks and buy $75,000 worth of insurance. Um, that's kind of an interesting point, and a lot of young, younger visitors particularly seem to respond to that with a bit of shock and awe. <laughs> I wonder if Dan Cooper bought insurance before he got on that plane in Portland. I'd be willing to bet if he did, mm. he did it under a different name. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but, now, what was the most challenging piece that you obtained, uh, the, most, the most difficult uh, process that you went through for, for one of the amazing pieces that we saw in the exhibit? The most difficult? Um, Definitely moving a 727 into your building is never easy. <laughs> uh, that, and to me, that was probably the most challenging piece is that a lot of the pieces that came to us, um, particularly from the airplane, um, we didn't know exactly how big they were going to be or how we were going to display them or what kind of platform they were going to be on or even really for sure what kind of shape they would be in when they got here. Um, for instance, we have a an airport model upstairs um, that is so big that we didn't actually think we'd be able to fit in the gallery. Um, we were worried at some point that we would have to put it in the lobby or have to put it in a different part of the exhibit and completely rearrange the exhibit. Um, as it turns out, with the very, very narrow fit, we were able to um, squeeze it in there, but we didn't know. Um, and of course, uh, other, another piece we have on display, for instance, is our app, is the aft stair from 727, which is about 20 feet long. Um, and figuring out how to suspend that, how to make it so that it wasn't a dangerous piece. Um, those things were all very challenging. And they're, they're challenging because I think as curators, we're used to having to deal with things like, you know, a precious artifact that we put in a locked case um, or something delicate that we have to handle very sensitively. But we're not necessarily used to moving in huge parts of airplanes. <laughs> so. The question comes to mind, of course, why did the Washington State History Museum decide to showcase the saga of D.B. Cooper? Besides, of course, the obvious, cashing in on his insurance policy they found in the insurance machine. But beyond that, Gwen explained that originally the intent was to present an exhibit on several of Washington's unsolved mysteries. We started researching Cooper first. And we realized pretty quickly 
we're like, this is a huge story. And no one understands how big this story is. I mean, the Cooper story has everything. You've got the Northwest Connection, um, is it all happening in here? You've got the um, context of the recession in the 70s, the hijackings, people, you know, take this plane to Cuba, people um, experiencing this rash of hijackings that happens year after year after year. And then, you know, the deeper we delved into the mystery, the more we discovered that there were things like, you know, just how were criminal investigations done in the 70s? You know, look, there's, it's fascinating. There's like evidence that was lost, evidence that was found. The case keeps reopening itself in a way too because you keep having new discoveries um, or things that we think are new discoveries, like, you know, the finding of the money in 1980, the Amboy shoot, stuff like that. So the case has never really completely gone cold. Um, and then of course you have the repercussions of Cooper. You know, look at how aircraft security has changed. Look at the fact that you have suddenly all these extortionist hijackers after that which in turn leads to you know, other developments in terrorism. Um, and so we thought, this is a really important story, and most people only see the folk hero side of it. They don't see the ramifications, they don't see how it changed the Northwest. They see it as sort of this jokey pop culture thing that maybe you thought about once when you were like a kid or you know, an adult, and you kind of shelved it, you put it away, and didn't think about it again. Um, and we're like, this is a chance to really delve deeply into the subject, to really you know, have people re-examine it and say, how does this matter today and why is it so important? And that's kind of our goal. Gwen told us a little about finding one of the actual pieces of the plane, the identification plate. One of the challenges that, you know, to be honest, I think a lot of things changed over the course of curating this exhibit. I think there was a lot of misconceptions that we had, at least I had personally. Um, so I remember thinking, oh, well, you know, the 727, the Cooper hijack, that must be a notorious plane, so probably people know where it is. Um, well, they didn't treat it in the same way that I suspect they may have treated the planes from 9-11, for instance. Um, it was just another plane. It was just another asset. So they kept flying it. They didn't take it out of commission. They didn't, they didn't file the serial number. They didn't do any of that. They just kept flying it. And then they sold it twice. It got sold twice. And then it got scrapped. So finding pieces from the original plane was really tricky. We were only able to locate two, um, and one of the pieces is on permanent display in a museum, and they weren't able to take it off, it was the yoke. And then the other, fortunately, was just kind of a fluke. The guy who had the plate came forward and said, hey, I have the um, identification plate from the plane, Cooper plane. You guys interested in displaying it? And we are like, yes. Um, so once we checked, once we were, you know, did the background research, obviously, to make sure the plate checked out, um, it did. So we're really happy to actually have a piece of the original plane because, for the most part, that plane, as far as we can tell, has just been scrapped, melted down, pieces have kind of gone everywhere. But no one really cared about the significance at the time other than a couple, uh, you know, souvenir hunters. No exhibit on D.B. Cooper would be complete without the smooth criminal's signature accoutrement. And with the FBI's many bank boxes of evidence collecting dust just down the road in Seattle, surely a black clip-on tie, a matchbook, and some Raleigh cigarette butts would not be too much hassle to obtain. Gwen explains. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do was to try to come up with pieces of evidence or sample um, objects that would represent the evidence that the FBI was not able to release to us for the exhibition. Um, this being an open criminal investigation, we, of course, were not able to put those objects on display, such as the tie. Um, we know the cigarette butts have been lost, um, the matchbook and the uh, tie pin. And a private donor was actually able to supply the matchbook and the tie pin, um, so I won't say too much about that. Um, but 
to find the, Ra the Raleigh cigarettes, we found a Raleigh cigarette pack from the era. Um, we actually had to track down a museum who had a carton and convince them weeks before the exhibit that they wanted to part with the, just one pack out of the carton for this exhibit because it was the one piece we needed. Um, we were lucky enough to be able to do that. Um, the tie was an extensive scavenger hunt that actually I think we must have looked for this tie or one like it for probably at least a year um, because we pretty much started very early on um, because you know we wanted to find a Towncraft number three from JCPenney with the label intact, both labels, um, and that was a clip-on of course. Um, we were not able to find a black tie. It is slightly different. It's a dark navy blue. Um, but it does have all the labels. It is the right rough, as you know, the rough era, right era, um, and it's actually one of the pieces that seemed to impress um, some of the visitors who had experience with the tie, who came um, because they were like, "Wow, you found one that looks so much like it." That's what I was wondering. Did Tom K take a look at it and find some titanium shavings in this specific tie? <laughs> or anything? No, but they were pretty happy with it, <laughs> which you know was a relief to us. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, what? does a Towncraft JCPenney tie cost now if you're able to locate one? It's Seven bucks? No, it was, I, I, I don't want to, I can't remember the exact amount, honestly, this piece we found on Etsy. <laughs> so I think it was, I want to think it was around like, it was close. It was like around 10 or $15, you know, kind of a used tie that, you know, the, the owner didn't really care. It wasn't a big deal to them. They're just like, it's a vintage tie. We're like, no, it looks like Cooper's tie. So it had more sentiment to us than to them. That's fantastic, and we'll be sure to put a picture of this display on, on the webpage for the episode. That's right. Found on Etsy. Keeping it handmade in spirit since whenever the fuck Etsy was started. Immersed so deeply in this saga, surrounded by all of these artifacts, talking to the scores of visitors to the museum, and combing through mountains and mountains of pure raw data, Surely Gwen must have had a sense of what happened to D.B. Cooper. So, Gwen, a common question that we get asked at Kick-Ass Oregon History, and I'm sure you get, you get asked all the time now, is uh, what do you think happened to Dan Cooper? What, what do you think about when you hear that question, and what's, what's your answer? Well, you know, to be honest, I don't have a consistent answer for that. Um, and the reason is that one of the things the wonderful things about putting together an exhibit like this is that people start contacting you um, and they contact you constantly. And um, it's, it's a mix of people. It's people who have theories. Um, it's people who were there, who were part of it, people who remember something. And sometimes it's just walking through and listening to visitors and the questions that they ask. So, you know, it would be hard for me to say that I have a definitive theory because at this point, as I'm constantly being presented with new information, um, what I think keeps changing. Um, so I'm really reluctant to say too much about that. However, one of the good things about this exhibit and about people coming forward to us um, with their memories or experiences um, is that we're able to continually update our own collection. Um, we have the website online and we keep adding pieces to it. And sometimes it's stuff that um, directly relates to Cooper, such as you know the memories of a passenger who was there, other times it's stuff that we think is important to the case, but not necessarily something that other people would think of, um, such as, you know, the recollections of people who were working in the airport office while the parachutes were being brought in. Um, you know, ordinary people who were around, um, who were part of the case, but not like the big players in it. We think that maybe by bringing together some of those, um, I, those interviews and 
those experiences, maybe there'll be something there that's not uncovered. Because I think what the public generally has access to with this case are like the people who wrote books about it, like um, Himmelsbaugh. I mean, that's the kind of experience that it's, you know, and that's a wonderful to have those um, experiences and those things written down. But what really can solve a case is if we start getting all these memories and all these thoughts and what happened to a wide variety of people and not just, you know, a few selected perspectives that are, that's what's out there. Um, you know, we do have to be sensitive to the fact that this is an open and criminal investigation, but at the same time, anything that we're collecting, um, we're putting online as soon as we can, um, just so that that information can be analyzed by others who are interested in this case. So you still haven't told me what you think happened to Dan Cooper. Nope, that's a secret. <laughs> and of course, the resident historian couldn't help but ask one of our favorite questions to pose to D.B. Cooper sleuths and experts. So my next question for you, Gwen, this case is just about 42 years old to the day. Uh, what do you think is inherent in this case. Why is this case still so popular? I mean, as you're saying, it's it's one of your most popular exhibits. Why is that so for this kind of aged case? Well, who doesn't like a mystery? I mean, we're, we still care about what happened to Amelia Earhart. Um, we probably always will. Um, there's a lot to the Cooper case. Um, it's, for starters, it's an unsolved case. Um, Cooper got away with it. Or as, as it goes, um, he you know managed to disappear um, with the ransom. Whether you know he died or not, we don't know for sure. But um, that's very appealing to some people. The fact that you know in an era that was so filled with uncertainty, was so filled with rebellion, you know Cooper managed to escape with this incredible ransom um, against you know incredible incredible odds. Um, no one you know no one got on that plane and arrested him, for instance. Um, so there's that appeal to it. Cooper is the folk hero. Um, there's also the story itself is really personal to a lot of us who are, who um, lived in the Northwest. You know, grew up in Oregon and Washington. Um, you know, I know that when I was a kid, I remember hearing about um, the money being found, and you know, from then on, it was like we're out on the beach, you look for Cooper's money. <laughs> Not that we we're going to find it, but you know, that was a big deal to us, and I kind of grew up with that story. And I think a lot of people of varying ages have kind of grown up with that story. Um, also, Cooper uh, committed the crime in an era that was has a lot of kind of iconic moments for Seattleites especially. Um, and I say iconic, I don't mean iconic in a positive way. Um, but you know, you have the Boeing bust. You have the billboard out there that says, you know, the last person leaving Seattle turned the lights off. Um, huge unemployment. You have the Vietnam War. You have all this unrest. And so, you know, when you think about what's going this particular crime you also remember those moments as well you know so this kind of a catalyst it's it feels almost you know like it's emblematic of everything else that's happening and then of course you know aviation is huge in the northwest so to an unsolved crime that has to do with that is always going to you know kind of resonate with people and kind of spark their interest but more than anything it really i think is the mystery aspect and and the belief either that it can be solved or that it will never be solved um, I do think that, you know, if the case, I, I do believe that there's possibility for the case to be solved. I think as more and more people come forward and as technology has changed, I think there's certainly opportunity there. I think it's kind of an exciting time since, you know, 2007 when the case was, you know, kind of open to the public in a sense, obviously not completely, um, and citizen researchers began a part, became a part of that. I think that's really when the potential opened up, you know, greatly for that to happen. Um, 
And that's another aspect of it that is really fascinating. I mean, we don't have always have a chance to look at, I'll use Amelia Earhart as an example again, but you know, the public hasn't really had a chance to examine the files on Amelia Earhart. They haven't been asked to be a part of that. They haven't been asked to look at any of that and speculate um, by the authorities. Um, whereas, you know, with someone like with Cooper, you know, the public was actually brought into this at one point. And I think that's really exciting and really meaningful because, you know, who knows anybody out there could could have the solution and, you know, we don't know that. Somebody may already have the solution. Um, you know, so it'll be, it's just a fascinating case to watch because it's continually evolving and will probably continue to evolve for years. So tell our listeners again how they can find the exhibit and uh, how long it's going to be on and so on. Okay, well you can find out about our exhibit. Um, we actually have a special webpage for it at dbcooper.washingtonhistory.org. Um, and that's kind of our one stop where you'll see everything from the exhibit itself to the programs um, to that to our gallery of materials, documents, information, all about Cooper um, that's being continually updated. Um, so that's one place to find out about it. It does run till January 5th, so 2014. 2014. <laughs> um, I would urge people to try to see it while it's here. Um, this is not going anywhere else. It's beginning and ending at the Washington State History Museum. And because of the number of artifacts and the scope of um, where we obtain those objects, it may be difficult to find it, um, anything like it in another location. Thank you so much for showing us around today, Gwen. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope everybody that's listening to this gets a chance to come up here and see this amazing exhibit. Thank you, Doug. As longtime listeners to our podcast survey know, we are pretty fucking geeked out about D.B. Cooper. And from all reports, the resident historian and Melissa the intern, being quite familiar with the case, were still astounded at the depth and detail given to the case by Gwen and her colleagues. The artifacts encompass three galleries. It is the largest exhibit to be held in the museum. They deconstructed a 727 for fuck's sake. In addition, the staff did a superb job placing this crime within its historical context. And they have an actual script from that horrific Treat Williams film we showed you last November. This is an exhibit not to be missed. So, get your ass on I-5 and drive the two fucking hours through the sideways rain and go see the Cooper exhibit. Because once it's gone, it will be gone for good. And just like our storied protagonist, gone without a trace. You have until January 5th, 2014. Thank you for listening, Ass Kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this podcast featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. 
There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon History events, pick up Oregon History merchandise, and receive extra insight into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Kick-Ass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you. You can support the podcast today. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History. You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. And as always, we'd like to thank our friends at Eastside Distilling, crafters of Burnside Bourbon, for their generous support. We have two events coming up in November, and we need to tell you about them. First, please join our resident historian, Doug Kent Crispin, at the Jack London Bar on Tuesday, November 19th at 7.30 p.m. for D.B. Cooper 101. Doug will give you the straight shit on this famous case, detailing the crime, discussing lead suspects in the case, and showing some lesser-known films associated with the caper. And we'll even have a trivia contest. The winner will receive two Tacoma Museum passes, which allow admission to the Washington State History Museum and the Tacoma Art Museum, and the Museum of Glass as well. So, join us on November 19th at the Jack London Bar at 7.30 p.m. for D.B. Cooper 101. The program is free. Then, on Saturday, November 30th, 2013, at the Washington State History Museum, please join us for the annual D.B. Cooper Symposium as we geek the fuck out on all things Cooper. Jeffrey Gray author of the best-selling Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper, will be the keynote speaker. Gwen Whiting and Fred Pointer of the Washington State History Museum will also talk. And our own resident historian, Doug Kent Crispin, will be the master of ceremonies for the event. The festivities begin at 9 a.m. on November 30th and will include a break so you have time to visit this comprehensive exhibit. Oh, and afterwards, we're all going to caravan down to Ariel, Washington for the Cooper Days party. So please join us at the D.B. Cooper Symposium in Tacoma, Washington on November 30th. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. He takes his Master of Ceremonies responsibilities very seriously and likes to crack the whip. Literally. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass!